Hello and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, board certified veterinary anesthesiologist, and as always, a proud gas passer. I am so glad you decided to spend your time with me today as we go through our anesthesia journey together. With each passing episode, I feel like I learned something new, and I hope you get that feeling as well. I'm very excited about today's episode for two reasons. The first is that our main topic of conversation is something that is foundational to anesthetic practice, which is, of course, induction agents. And just to be clear, this conversation will be geared heavily towards the use of induction agents in dogs and cats. Because I work as a consultant with many veterinary practices, I get the feeling that most veterinary practitioners and technicians feel very comfortable inducing most dogs and cats with propofol. However, I also find that many veterinary practitioners and technicians are curious about other options or whether or not propofol is appropriate to use for every patient, especially for small animals with some systemic diseases, cause them to fall into ASA 3 or, or higher categories. I am hoping that by the end of this conversation, you will feel a little more comfortable using several different induction agents in your practice and that you will gain confidence in choosing which one is best for your individual patient. The second reason I am excited for this episode is because of our guest. He is Dr. Xander Thompson, a boarded anesthesiologist practicing in Hong Kong and a former anesthesia resident of mine. As I mentioned earlier, I always feel like I learn something new from each of our guests, and I'm very happy to see the roles reverse, where the former teacher, myself, learns something from their former student. And if you stick around towards the end, we're going to learn a little bit more about what it's like to practice anesthesia in a different country outside of North America. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Hi, Dr. Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us today on the NAVAS podcast. Hi, happy to be here. So let's just start with you telling us a little bit about what your current role is and let us know about where you've been, how you've come to become an anesthesiologist. Sure. So right now I am in Hong Kong and I'm the medical director and an anesthesiologist at the City University of Hong Kong Veterinary Medical Center. We are somewhat of a hybrid role practice. So we operate like a private practice, but we also are owned by City University of Hong Kong, which is starting a veterinary program and just have our first crop of Hong Kong trained vet students coming through the program now who will be graduating this summer. Before I was in Hong Kong, I was doing my residency at University of Florida in anesthesia and pain management, and I got my undergraduate and veterinary degrees at Cornell University before doing my rotating internship at Wheat Ridge Animal Hospital in Denver, Colorado. And my interest in anesthesia started during my veterinary training at Cornell, actually. I had gone into vet school planning on being an ambulatory equine practitioner and quickly realized the potential downsides of that career path while also realizing that I wanted to practice with many different species and I had an interest in pharmacology and physiology and anesthesia seemed to be the perfect combination of being able to manipulate those variables in real time and and see the effects and be able to provide a really 
valuable service to the patient and to the profession as well. So anything interesting that was happening in the hospital, anesthesia was involved in. So I wanted to be able to use my knowledge and my skill sets in the, the broadest possible context. So that's how I became an anesthesiologist. I'm really glad you brought that up because I've been wanting to ask each one of our guests who come on why they like anesthesia. And so you just beautifully answered it. Anesthesia is awesome, as you can attest to. And we have the pain management aspect of our specialty as well. And I find that so rewarding, especially when we have a patient that comes in in pain for whatever reason, whether it's trauma or whether it's a, a metabolic issue or pancreatitis or something like that. And that's such a significant and pivotal point in an animal's quality of life that we can meaningfully address. And being able to see an animal go from a state of extreme pain to a state of comfort, being able to rest comfortably, being able to sleep is, is one of the most rewarding things that we can do as anesthesiologists. That's really well said. Let's jump now into what the main topic of this conversation is going to be, which is going to be all about induction agents. And I find this to be a cornerstone of anesthetic practice. Having good foundational knowledge about our induction agents is really important. So let's just, first of all, back up a little bit. In your opinion, why use an induction agent? Why not just induce a patient with inhalant anesthetics? What benefit do we get from including a separate drug to create a state of unconsciousness for our patients? So I think when we're talking about inducing anesthesia, we're talking about a time when we are rapidly changing, potentially disrupting the animal's physiology and normal homeostasis. So when we are assessing different induction protocols, so injectable versus inhalant anesthesia, it's helpful perhaps to envision the ideal induction agent. And what are the qualities that we're looking for in this period of disruption when we're rapidly changing an animal's state from conscious to unconscious and potentially changing some of their baseline homeostasis processes? So an ideal induction agent probably would produce rapid, smooth induction of unconsciousness and analgesia. It would be rapidly cleared, so it wouldn't have lasting residual effects. And we would want an agent that has no side effects whatsoever. And in the real world, there is no such thing as an ideal induction agent. So we have to consider our patient's individual comorbidities and physiology and pick and choose the qualities associated with each of our possible induction protocols that would be best suited to that particular patient. And what you'll find if you compare inhalant induction to an injectable induction, inhalant induction fulfills almost none of those criteria. It's not going to provide rapid, smooth induction of unconsciousness in most situations. It is occasionally performed in humans and, and some other species because of very different circumstances. So humans can receive instructions. We have face masks that fit well. They can be positioned differently so that the airway is not at a very high risk of, of aspiration. Many of those things are not possible in veterinary patients. But in addition to that, induction with inhalant can be quite stressful to the patient. So 
you're giving drugs that will eventually cause quite significant cardiorespiratory depression. And by inducing stress in the patient, you are changing their cardiorespiratory variables in one direction to the extreme before you will rapidly shift to the other direction. So in other words, what I'm saying is there'll be a lot of catecholamine release, your patient's cardiac output and respiratory rate may increase. We know that inhalant induction is prolonged when cardiac output is increased. So actually the state of stress itself will increase the length of induction when using an inhalant induction protocol. And then you're going to have to use a very high dose of inhalant to produce unconsciousness in an excited animal, which means that once they do become unconscious, the pendulum is going to swing in the other direction and they can become overly anesthetized and we can start seeing some of the adverse effects associated with inhalant induction. Compare that to injectable induction protocols. They give us very precise control over the animal's physiologic state throughout the induction process and they are not going to be as affected by changes in hemodynamic parameters during the induction itself. So if the animal becomes excited or becomes stressed, um, that can be fairly easily managed with injectable agents compared to inhalational agents. And we provide a much more rapid transition into a state of unconsciousness, which allows us to quickly control the airway and take control of the animal's other vital functions to ensure that we're not seeing complications. So in your daily practice, what are like the top three induction protocols you're using for dogs and cats? And just to be like clear with this particular conversation, we're going to be focusing mostly on dogs and cats. But if you want to throw in any tidbits about other species, you know, I'm happy to hear that. Well, you know me, so it'll come as no surprise to you that the number one induction protocol I use in my patients is Ketofol, which is, for those uninitiated to the Church of Ketofol, is a a combination of propofol and ketamine. And, And there are various different dose combinations that can be used. I tend to use around three milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, but people will use anywhere from maybe a half a milligram per kilogram all the way up to maybe five milligrams per kilogram, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So that's the number one induction protocol or induction agent that I use day to day. Number two and three probably would be propofol alone, so without ketamine, or alfaxalone alone. Okay. In hospital and my practice, we have many, many different options for induction agents. So we will do neuroleptic induction. Sometimes we use atomidate. Sometimes we will use benzodiazepines, but top three would be ketofol, propofol, alfaxalone. So as Dr. Thompson mentioned already, number one, we used to work together at the University of Florida, and that is how I got to know Dr. Thompson as being like the chairman of the, as we called it, the town of Ketafal, and Dr. Thompson was the mayor. So that's really why I wanted to invite you onto the podcast so we could talk a little bit more about using combinations of propofol and ketamine. But before we jump into that, I kind of want to just start with propofol, just propofol alone. Why don't you just tell me what is the good, what's the bad? And, you know, what's the interesting thing about propofol? Sure. So propofol is probably the most popular induction agent available today on the veterinary market. 
And that's because it fulfills many of those qualities of kind of the ideal induction agent that we just talked about. So it provides rapid, smooth induction of unconsciousness. Unlike some other induction agents, it depresses airway reflexes. And that might sound like a bad thing. And in some situations it may be, but actually depression of airway reflexes is a very valuable attribute for an induction agent when you need to secure an airway. So if your animal isn't having laryngeal spasms or swallowing when you're trying to intubate, it's going to make it a lot easier to get your endotracheal tube inserted. Propofol is rapidly redistributed and has minimal residual effects. And I will be specific here and say rapidly redistributed because actually the half-life of propofol can be a couple hours or even longer. So the reason that the offset time of propofol is so rapid compared to its half-life is because it's going to go to highly vascularized parts of the body first after injected. And so the brain, the liver, the kidneys, and because it's so lipophilic or fat soluble, it's going to diffuse into the brain very, very quickly. But over the first few minutes after you inject propofol, it's slowly going to re-enter the bloodstream from the brain and be redistributed to less vascular areas of the body, like the fat tissue where it will be deposited and kind of slowly seep out over time. And the reason that's important is because the longer you infuse propofol for the more saturated those low vascularity compartments of the body become, and your offset time of propofol becomes longer and longer to a point. The other desirable qualities of propofol is that it reduces intracranial pressure under most circumstances and reduces the cerebral metabolic oxygen requirement, which helps preserve neurological function. Like I said, though, before, there's no such thing as an ideal induction agent. So there are downsides to propofol as well. It doesn't have any significant analgesic properties. So propofol alone is insufficient if you're performing a surgery of some kind. You're going to need to pre-medicate with an opioid or some other analgesic protocol so that your patient doesn't experience nociception during the procedure. And it does have cardiorespiratory depressant effects. These are dose-dependent and plasma concentration-dependent. So propofol will produce vasodilation and will be a myocardial depressant and the larger the dose you give or the more quickly you give that dose, the more likely you are to see that effect. And it will cause apnea as well. So if you give propofol very quickly or if you give a large bolus of propofol, you are likely to produce respiratory depression or even apnea. And this is one of the reasons that propofol actually has a fairly narrow therapeutic index. So the therapeutic index is the difference between the effective dose and the toxic dose. And if we're considering that the toxic effect of propofol is apnea, the dose that produces apnea is actually quite close to the dose that produces anesthetic induction. And I always highlight this to my students because propofol is very, very commonly used and many people get very, very comfortable with propofol. And I always say don't get complacent with propofol because it has a low therapeutic index, and that means it's easy to accidentally injure your patient with propofol. Nine times out of 10, if you push your propofol too fast and your patient becomes apneic, it's not a big deal. You put the endotracheal tube in and you can ventilate for your patient and, and right. move on with your day. But maybe that 1% of the time or that 5% of the time that you open the patient's mouth and there's a surprise in there, maybe there's a tumor, maybe the larynx has collapsed. Maybe the doc has limited range of motion in the TMJ. You don't always know these things going into anesthetic induction. And now if your patient's apneic, 
hopefully you've pre-oxygenated and you have four minutes to figure out how to secure your patient's airway and ventilate for them. But if not, you've got 60 seconds to figure out how you're going to get oxygen to your patient's brain. But if you push your propofol slowly and to effect, you're much less likely to cause that type of an issue and maintain your patient's spontaneous ventilation. So just to summarize propofol in a nutshell, good things about it is that it has a very rapid onset, it avoids laryngospasms, and uh, allows you to access the patient's airway very rapidly, and it's very commonly used. Something else I just want to point out there is the fact that not in every area of the country it's controlled. I practice in Florida, and in Florida it is not a controlled substance. In some areas it is. And so that would be a very different type of benefit. But in Florida, it's not a controlled substance. So it's a little easier and less cumbersome to use it as well. And I guess the bad side would be that it does cause apnea and it can cause some temporary hypotension as well. And I wanted to just ask you one question. I find that when I induce with propofol, maybe I push the drug very quickly for some reason or someone I'm working with pushes the drug very quickly the animal's blood pressure will drop. But something I find very interesting is that there isn't really a compensatory tachycardia or an increase in heart rate. It tends to be that the heart rate kind of stays the same. And the reason that's important is because with that lack of change in heart rate, with the vasodilation, you can get pretty massive drops in cardiac output. And that has been my experience. So I didn't know if you were also seeing that with your patients as well. Right. I've had the same experience. And that's a very important point to bring up because half of the cardiac output equation is the heart rate. So if you're not compensating by increasing your systemic vascular resistance and your heart rate drops, your cardiac output is going to drop pretty significantly as well. So that combination of vasodilation and a static heart rate can lead to a pretty significant change in your patient's physiology during this critical time when they may also not be breathing as much as they normally would be. They're becoming unconscious. This is a very rapid change in the patient's resting state. And the more that we can do to preserve their baseline physiology, the better, in my opinion. So yes, propofol can have that significant effect on, on cardiac output. Yeah, we could probably talk about propofol all day, but we'll probably just jump right into ketamine. Dr. Thompson probably knows this about me, but if you had to ask me what my favorite anesthetic drug was to use in my daily practice, I would totally say it was ketamine. So I'm going to give you a chance because I can sit up here and talk get on my soapbox and talk all day about how amazing of a drug ketamine is, but I'm going to pass the mic to you. So let's kind of do the same thing. So with ketamine, what is the good? What's the bad? You know, what's the interesting thing about using ketamine as an induction agent? Sure. So ketamine, like propofol, has a relatively rapid onset of action and short duration. It tends to have a little bit slower onset and a little bit longer duration than one compared to propofol. But unlike propofol, it also has analgesic properties through its mechanisms of action of of inhibiting NMDA receptors. Ketamine is a nice counterbalance to propofol because it will produce some central sympathetic stimulation. Well, actually, there's a couple of different mechanisms by which it increases sympathetic tone. The first is that it increases sympathetic outflow from the central nervous system. 
and it also inhibits norepinephrine reuptake. So that results in some sympathetic effects. So you can see a slight increase in blood pressure or systemic vascular resistance. You can see an increase in heart rate. You also see bronchial smooth muscle relaxation. So it can decrease airway resistance as well, which is a really nice quality in some patients. It can increase intracranial pressure under some circumstances and potentially your cerebral metabolic oxygen demand. A lot of that can be ameliorated by controlling the patient's ventilation and preventing them from becoming hypercapnic, which we know is the primary determinant of intracranial pressure in most patients without significant intracranial disease. And at sub-anesthetic doses, it can cause dysphoria and emergence delirium because it's a dissociative anesthetic. So in other words, it scrambles the patient's perception of reality into some of our patients that can be quite distressing. The solution to that is obviously using it in combination with other drugs to produce unconsciousness and to manage anxiety, fear, those types of side effects. Um, It can cause muscle rigidity. Again, the solution to that is using it in combination with drugs that produce muscle relaxation. But if you use ketamine alone, you're likely to see some degree of, of muscle rigidity. And along the same lines, it will preserve laryngeal and pharyngeal reflexes. So if you're inducing with just ketamine, that can make your life more difficult when you try to intubate the patient. And then I guess kind of the last precaution I would note about ketamine is that it does have a direct negative inotropic effect. But in 90% of patients, probably more than that, you're never going to see that effect because it's going to be masked by the sympathetic stimulation that ketamine produces. However, if you have a very critically ill animal, and I've only ever seen this in animals that are close to death, that have sympathetic exhaustion, you can uncover this direct negative inotropic effect if there's no more sympathetic tone that can be produced by that Okay. To summarize, it is a great induction agent to use because it has analgesic properties. It is a little bit of a slower onset time, but a longer duration of action when compared to propofol. And I mean, probably the negative things I would say about ketamine include the muscle rigidity. Sometimes you'll see patients that will have, at least in my experience, will have nystagmus. Sometimes their tongue will keep flicking or they'll make slight muscle twitches and things like that. But they truly are in a state of unconsciousness. But you will see like kind of these these random muscle spasms in, in different areas. And I've never really used ketamine by itself. I've always given it with another drug that provides muscle relaxation. So something like midazolam, propofol, or dexmedetomidine would all be drugs that I've kind of used in combination with with ketamine. One thing you didn't mention, but I just want to make sure that we discuss briefly is the use of ketamine in cats, specifically with cats with either known heart murmurs or animals or cats that have subclinical heart disease. What would you say about the use of ketamine in cats where let's just give this example. So you have a cat that comes in very aggressive or difficult to escort for some reason, and you're unaware of its cardiac function. So what would you say to the use of ketamine in in this population of cats? Sure. I would be very cautious in the use of ketamine in these cats because of the potential for that increased sympathetic stimulation. So in most cats, when you detect a heart murmur, that's going to be due to systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. Of course, there are other 
reasons for heart murmurs in cats as well, but that's probably the most common reason. And that's usually associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And one of our goals in cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, which is the most common heart disease in cats, is to avoid tachycardia because tachycardia will decrease the amount of time allowed for perfusion of the ventricular myocardium. It will decrease ventricular filling time and potentially decrease cardiac output. And it can predispose the cat to developing dangerous arrhythmias if the myocardium becomes ischemic. So one thing that we really want to avoid in these cats is tachycardia or increasing the heart rate, which ketamine can do. And ketamine may also contribute to or it may not alleviate the diastolic dysfunction in these cats. So these cats have reduced myocardial compliance, which means that their ventricles don't stretch as well as they are supposed to, which means that the ventricle doesn't fill with blood as well as it's supposed to, which affects cardiac output. That said, there are a lot of people who probably get away with giving ketamine combinations to cats with heart disease without knowing it. And probably the reason they get away with it is because they're combining it with something like dexmedetomidine, which as an alpha-2 agonist will increase vagal tone and may mask some of that sympathetic stimulation that would normally be produced by the ketamine. But actually, if you give an alpha-2 agonist first, oftentimes you will suppress that increase in sympathetic tone that the ketamine would otherwise produce. So I still wouldn't recommend it, but... It's something that I would approach very cautiously in that population of cats. All right, let's jump to alfaxalone next. Of all the induction agents we have here in the United States, alfaxalone is the newest kid in town. I think a lot of practices, at least that I work for, where I consult around the state of Florida, I get a lot of questions about whether or not they should purchase alfaxalone or, or carry alfaxalone in their clinic. So... I think there's a lot of questions about like, why would you add alfaxalone if you already have propofol? So let's just focus in on thinking about that question. And we'll talk again about like the good, the bad, the interesting, specifically about alfaxalone as an induction agent, why you might consider adding it to your clinic, even though you might already have propofol. Yeah. And I can certainly understand that question because from my perspective, when you're using alfaxalone IV as an induction agent, its properties are very, very similar, almost identical to those of propofol. So it has a rapid onset and offset. It produces dose-dependent vasodilation and cardiorespiratory depression. The induction dose is slightly lower compared to to that of propofol. So you can use a, a little bit less volume, but there are some advantages of alfaxalone compared to propofol and some potential justifications why you would keep both in your clinic. And one of those, and probably the most relevant when it comes to just the logistics of performing anesthesia, is that you can use alfaxone intramuscularly, unlike propofol. So, for example, the cat in the previous question that has some undefined heart murmur and may have cardiac disease you can give IM alfaxalone instead of ketamine. And when it's absorbed very slowly from the muscle, it's going to have very, very minimal, very mild effects on the cardiovascular system. So it's a nice, gentle IM sedation protocol. Now, you do have to use fairly high doses, especially in aggressive cats. So the really, really aggressive cats, I'm often using five mg per kg of alfaxalone, which can become quite a large volume, especially in a larger cat. But it tends to be a little bit safer than or perhaps less 
demanding on the patient's physiology than other IM injection protocols. The other reason that I commonly use alfaxalone is for cesarean section. And there was a paper that came out a little while ago that showed that after induction of the mother with alfaxalone, the APGAR scores or the puppy vigor scores are higher with alfaxalone compared to an induction with propofol. The overall survival of the neonates was no different, but certainly if you're in a busy practice and you can only spare a few people to help with resuscitation of puppies, it's very helpful to have higher APGAR scores coming out. So the alfaxalone can help reduce the workload and improve the speed of resuscitation of neonates as well. Yeah, I would say that I agree with you about the fact that I think alfaxalone has its advantages in the fact that it can be administered intramuscularly as a sedative agent. As an aside, I just want to point out, since we are both like, I would say like uh, people who love ketamine, just to also point out ketamine can also be given IM as I think we have alluded to previously. One thing I wanted to ask you specifically about alfaxalone is in my experience, I have been utilizing alfaxalone more in patients, specifically, I mean, dogs, but also cats, I would say, that have heart murmurs. I think that's become a very popular use of alfaxalone recently, is that instead of using propofol in any animal as a heart murmur, I've seen people just use alfaxalone instead. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about where that trend is coming from and whether or not that's backed up by any scientific evidence? Sure. I think that some of it is marketing. <laughs> I think that drugs has been very, very effective in promoting alfaxone as this very, very safe drug for a variety of, of cardiac conditions. But like all anesthetic drugs, I'm a believer that there's no such thing as a safe anesthetic. There's only a safe anesthetist. So as long as you understand how the drug works, that you're using and the expected effects that you will see, you can use a lot of different anesthesia drugs safely in a lot of different types of patients. That said, for patients with heart murmurs, alfaxalone can be quite a useful drug, but it depends again on the type of heart disease that you're dealing with. And I would say that alfaxalone is probably most useful if you're giving it IV in patients that have volume overload cardiac pathologies like mitral valve disease because these are patients where a slight reduction in afterload or a slight vasodilation might actually be beneficial in promoting forward blood flow. Blood is going to flow through the path of least resistance, and in patients that have dysfunctional mitral valves, if the afterload or the systemic vascular resistance is high, then more blood is going to flow backwards through the defective mitral valve instead of out into systemic circulation where it can perfuse the vital organs. If we give a drug like alfaxalone, which has a, a fairly wide therapeutic index, again, dose and plasma concentration dependent, it will produce a little bit of vasodilation, which may promote that forward blood flow and prevent mitral valve regurgitation. If we're using it IM, then alfaxalone is actually quite a safe cardiac drug because it's going to be absorbed very, very slowly from the muscle and it will have minimal hemodynamic effects when the plasma concentration remains kind of low and steady. I think just one more thing I want to point out about alfaxalone and ketamine as well that you alluded to is that 
They're both controlled substances, which does make their use a little bit more cumbersome, especially when compared to propofol in some areas. So I just wanted to point that out. That's true. And that's not something I often think about being in Hong Kong, (laughs) where our controlled drug laws are a lot more relaxed and there are a lot fewer controlled substances. So not something I think about day to day. Are any of these drugs that we're talking about controlled in Hong Kong? Um, Opioids and benzodiazepines. That's it? (laughs) And ketamine. And ketamine, yeah. But propofol, alfaxalone, and actually, surprisingly, barbiturates, so phenobarbital, pentobarbital, are not controlled drugs in Hong Kong. That's really interesting. One thing I just wanted to talk about with alfaxalone really quick is, so I think I have personally hopped on the bandwagon of utilizing alfaxalone more in patients with usually, as we discuss, kind of Uh, forward flow type of issues with their heart. So that's going to be things like mitral valve disease, which is extremely common amongst our population of, of canines, especially in the United States, hopefully similar to where you are. So I have utilized alfaxalone more and it's just because what I observe clinically when I, I compare alfaxalone to propofol is that I'm seeing a lot more animals' heart rate go up or they get slightly tachycardic with alfaxalone as their blood pressure goes down or it goes down slightly. So I find that that's actually a very useful physiologic change or that I see in my patients that have mitral valve disease. And I don't know how well that's reported. You know, I, I will be honest, I haven't like gone through the literature too much to see if that's something that other people have been seeing or has been reported on. But I wanted to know, have you been seeing this trend with alfaxalone too, or am I like a crazy person off in like alfaxalone town only seeing this in, <laughs> where I practice? No, I, I think I've seen that to some degree as well, and it hasn't been consistent, but I think that depends again on the, the rate of administration. And if you're giving it a little bit more slowly, you're more likely to see a compensatory increase in heart rate occur. Whereas if you give a big bolus of alfaxone, it's going to be a lot like giving a big bolus of of propofol very quickly. And you may not see, or that compensatory response may be diminished. But in those patients that we're talking about, those forward flow type pathologies like mitral valve disease, our goals are essentially the opposite of our goals for a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And actually a little bit of an increase in the heart rate is going to be beneficial in those patients. These patients usually have too much preload and increasing their heart rate decreases the amount of time that the heart spends in diastole and decreases that amount of time that the heart has to fill with blood. So actually, by increasing the heart rate, we can improve the mechanical properties of the heart. Okay, so now that I think we've done a really good job of giving like the meat and potatoes of the three major groups of induction agents, which is going to be propofol, ketamine, alfaxalone, I think we should start jumping into co-induction agents because I think this has also been a really hot topic in the veterinary anesthesia world. So I'm going to start with propofol midazolam because this was a super popular co-induction agent protocol when I was going through my residency. And I'm wondering if you can discuss a little bit about why you think that came to be, like why were people so excited about using propofol midazolam? 
And I wonder if there's any evidence about whether these properties, which we'll discuss in a minute, that people are really excited about, are, are those actually true? And if if there's any studies recently that that refute some of those benefits that the community was really excited about. Sure. And, and I'll preface this by saying that I do use propofol benzodiazepine combinations occasionally in, in some patients. But anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a huge fan of benzodiazepines. And um, every once in a while, there'll be some rumors that pop up about benzodiazepines becoming unavailable and people say, what are you going to do as an anesthesiologist without midazolam or, or diazepam available? And they're like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> I think yeah, I no think big deal. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not that excited about benzodiazepines and, and, and I can live without them. But I think the reason that they became so popular, especially in this, these induction protocols, is because, first of all, benzodiazepines have very few hemodynamic effects when they're injected IV. And there was a thought that when you use a benzodiazepine in conjunction with propofol, you can reduce your propofol dose required to to induce the patient. And that's true. The question then becomes, what is the benefit of reducing your propofol dose? And the thought was, well, maybe if we can reduce our propofol dose, we can prevent some of the adverse cardiorespiratory effects that are associated with propofol. So maybe we won't have as much vasodilation, maybe we won't have as much respiratory depression or apnea. And unfortunately, even with these co-induction protocols, it doesn't seem to have panned out that way. So there doesn't seem to be much of a difference in adverse effects comparing propofol alone to a combination of propofol and a benzodiazepine. There is some evidence to suggest that the order in which you give these drugs is important though. So if you give midazolam first and then you give your propofol, the majority of patients, otherwise healthy adult dogs and cats, may become actually excitable or dysphoric after you give that benzodiazepine. And in an excited or dysphoric animal, you may actually need an increased dose of propofol to accomplish induction. You might start seeing some more of those adverse effects associated with the propofol. Whereas if you give a little dose of propofol first, what we call sandwiching, so maybe you give half a mg per kg, you give one mg per kg of propofol first, and then you give your benzodiazepine, you're more likely to have a smoother induction without that excitatory phase. I would say the benefit now to using a co-induction of propofol and a benzodiazepine is that your benzodiazepine is going to have a little bit of a longer duration of action than your propofol. So it might provide you with a little bit of coverage in between the time when your induction agent is wearing off and the inhalant anesthetic in your circuit hasn't reached its maximal concentration yet. And when you're using a benzodiazepine, you can use a lower volume of your propofol. So especially in large patients, and there are other induction protocols that we will soon talk about that will also accomplish this goal, you can use a much lower volume of propofol to get the patient induced compared to propofol alone. So that's just more of a logistical benefit than an actual physiologic benefit. Yeah, for people who are interested in trying propofol with diazepam, depending on what you have in your clinic, I prefer midazolam personally, and I do find more practices carry midazolam in general. The way that I do it is I always tell people that the midazolam is the meat of the sandwich. And I personally give two mix per kick of propofol 
And then I'll give usually a 0.25 make per cake dose of midazolam. And then I just follow it up with whatever propofol is needed at the end. I don't know if you're doing something similar. I usually use around a make per cake of propofol. Two makes per cake obviously is going to accomplish the same thing. And then my dose usually depends on the duration of the procedure. So if it's a really short procedure and I really want to use a benzo for some reason, I might go a little lower on the dose, like a 0.1 make per cake dose, because I don't want the animal to be dysphoric and excitable in recovery. That's such a good point because I've totally done that where I've given like midazolam for a CT and then I always like curse the heavens because I forget <laughs> that midazolam is going to probably kick in and the animal's going to have a really rough recovery. Right. But if it's more than an hour procedure, I'll use around a quarter make per kick. If for whatever reason I'm out of options and I need a benzodiazepine to sedate the patient, I'm going to use a really high dose. I'll use half a make per kick sometimes of, of midazolam or diazepam if I need it to sedate a patient. But lower doses than that, I've found more often than not produce excitation than actual reliable sedation. So now I think we get to like our epic conclusion of this discussion, which I'm sure we're both anxiously awaiting to discuss, which is that the combination of using propofol and ketamine. Now I find that this is gains even more popularity than propofol midazolam now, at least I would say in the tight community of veterinary anesthesiologists and technicians that are extremely interested in anesthesia. So I think in this particular community, propofol and ketamine is the go-to induction agent. I don't think it's really popular in a lot of general practices or even maybe some specialty hospitals that uh, don't necessarily have an anesthesiologist or like a VTS anesthesia on staff. So I just want to discuss, you know, how is it that adding ketamine to propofol may be beneficial? And when do you use this combination? When do you avoid it? And I guess lastly, how do you do it? Like what's the right way to, to use these two drugs together? So I think propofol and ketamine as a co-induction protocol is a very versatile combination. And the reason that I really like this combination is because the drugs counterbalance each other. Like we were saying earlier, propofol will produce some dose-dependent vasodilation, which can affect cardiac output and cardiac depression, whereas ketamine will produce some sympathetic stimulation by increasing sympathetic outflow from the CNS and and potentially inhibiting norepinephrine reuptake. So where you get a little bit of vasodilation from your propofol, you can compensate for that by increasing your heart rate and you end up with a very hemodynamically stable anesthetic induction. The other thing that I really like about propofol is that it will reduce your patient's airway reflexes, which would be maintained otherwise with ketamine, and it will provide some muscle relaxation so you won't get that muscle rigidity that you would see with with ketamine alone. Ketamine does reduce airway sensitivity and increase bronchodilation, so it will reduce airway resistance in your patient. It will make them less likely to cough and and gag when you're intubating, assuming that you're using it with propofol and a co-induction to reduce the laryngeal and pharyngeal reflexes. And ketamine also provides some analgesia. So especially in combination with an opioid, it will potentiate the opioid analgesia. 
So using ketamine as part of your induction is a really easy way to get a loading dose of ketamine on board if you were then to provide a ketamine constant rate infusion during anesthesia for a major surgery like limb amputation or, or something like that, where you're going to need multiple different analgesic options available to you. So I can vary the dose of each drug in the protocol according to what my needs are. So if I just need a little bit of ketamine to provide a little bit of analgesia and maybe to cover that period when the propofol is wearing off before the induct or the inhalational agent has reached its maximum concentration in the breathing circuit, I can use even as low as a half a mg per kg or one mg per kg of, of ketamine. But if I want to rely more heavily on that, that ketamine sympathetic stimulation and increase the heart rate and increase the systemic vascular resistance, I can go three, four mg per kg of ketamine and provide a pretty decent sympathetic response that will counterbalance that propofol vasodilation. As with the other conduction protocol with benzodiazepines, I sandwich ketamine in the middle of my propofol. Because if you give ketamine alone, so if you give ketamine first, you're going to see that muscle rigidity, you might see excitation, you might see dysphoria in your patient. Usually not so much with the dysphoria because you're usually giving a dose that's going to produce unconsciousness pretty rapidly, but you will see muscle rigidity unless you give maybe one mg per kg or two mg per kg of propofol first. So I'll usually give one or two mg per kg of propofol, slowly, IV, then I'll give my, my full ketamine dose, and then I will titrate any additional propofol to effect after that to in, ensure the patient is ready to be intubated. That's also how I do it. So I give propofol first. I usually do the same thing, like two mg per kg of propofol. I usually always do two mg per kg of ketamine, but I do like that you mentioned that you can obviously alter the dose depending on what your goal is. But I find that I, I, I just always do two mix per kg ketamine. The reason I'm asking you is because I have heard some people who like to give the ketamine before propofol because ketamine has a longer onset time. So if you've ever induced an animal with like ketamine midazolam or just more heavily relying on your ketamine as your induction agent, I personally find that the biggest mistake people make is that they try to intubate the animal right away, just like you would with propofol. And I do feel like with ketamine, you have to like, I always call it, let the animal marinate. So you just put an oxygen mask on it and you just let them sit there for a good 20 or 30 seconds before you even start attempting to intubate the animal. Obviously you're picking the drug protocol for an animal that can like tolerate that. But that's one thing that I have found people argue giving ketamine before propofol because ketamine has this like longer onset time. So if you give your ketamine dose and you follow it with propofol, they should kind of be hitting around the same time into the central nervous system in theory. I have tried it that way and I've always found that the animals, for lack of better terminology, get weird. <laughs> when I've given the ketamine first, yeah, where they get like stiff and then they, I don't know. I just don't like, I don't think it's as smooth as giving propofol first. So that's just my opinion as someone who's tried it both ways. And I think that patience is a virtue in anesthesia. And many times that we see anesthetic protocols that aren't working or aren't working as expected, it's because we're impatient and we're trying to do things too quickly. So for example, we use alfaxalone as an IM pre-medication agent. And then three minutes later, we take the cat out of the kennel to place an IV catheter and it's still trying to claw us 
it's because we haven't given it enough time. And it's the same thing with propofol and ketamine inductions. If we just slow down a little bit and we give our propofol slowly, as we're supposed to be giving propofol to prevent apnea, then we shouldn't really see too much of a difference in the onset time between our, our propofol and our ketamine. One thing that I will note is that with ketofol, you are potentially going to produce apnea just as you will with propofol alone. So pre-oxygenation is so, so important, not only for patients you're inducing with ketofol, but every patient that you induce anesthesia. You should be pre-oxygenating your patient with a face mask for four minutes before you induce anesthesia. And that will, if your patient does become apneic, give you a little bit of extra time to be able to secure the airway before they start desaturating. And with ketofol especially, the speed of induction is so important, especially if you're using higher doses of ketamine, because you can produce apnea quite easily. And if you give your induction doses slowly, you're much less likely to run into that problem. Last point I just want to make, it has to do with cost. I know you live in Hong Kong, so if you have any insight in this, that would be really interesting. But I find that ketamine in general is an extremely cheap drug. And especially when you compare it, I mean, midazolam is not a very expensive drug either, but ketamine is even cheaper in most cases. So I also find that to be an advantage. And at least in the United States, if I had to like put these three major induction drugs on like a sliding scale of like cheap to expensive, I would say ketamine is going to be real cheap. Propofol somewhere in the middle. Alphaxalone is probably the most expensive, generally speaking, of all of the induction agents, which I think is another reason that general practices are a little hesitant about adding it into their arsenal. But I just wanted to point that out there. Is there any differences where you're practicing? Ketamine is very inexpensive here as well. It's been around a long time. It's off patent, unlike alphaxalone, so it can be produced very, very inexpensively. However, I have heard that concern about alfaxalone as well. And all I would say is just charge clients appropriately. And it's not an issue. Most clients, if you explain the benefit to them of using a drug that's safe like alfaxalone, they're more than willing to, to pay for that additional level of safety. So ketamine, yes, it's very inexpensive. It will reduce the cost associated with your induction, and that's potentially a benefit. But it's not a reason that I might choose one induction agent over another if client is appropriately informed. So the last thing I would say about this topic would be, as you say, there's no safe drug, only safe anesthetists. So that's a very important rule when it comes to induction agents. And always make sure that, in my opinion, have a buddy or double check your math. Always make sure you're giving the right dosages. And then two, you should totally try Probofol and ketamine. Absolutely. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) One last thing just before we run away for the evening. Well, for me, the evening, for you, the morning, is about the fact that you did your training in the United States and then you left and you started your career in Hong Kong. So I'm just wondering, what are some challenges to practicing anesthesia in a different country after you've done so much of your veterinary and residency training in the United States? Sure. So there have been a couple of things that have been quite different for me. And the first is that there are different units that are used here for a lot of our blood work values. So, for example, blood glucose here in Hong Kong is measured in millimoles per liter as opposed to milligrams per deciliter. So I actually have to 
multiply blood glucose by 18 to produce a number that I'm familiar with. And there are a lot of little examples like that, that it's a small learning curve, but you eventually get used to it. But the first time you see a blood glucose of five, it can be pretty disconcerting. Yeah, I bet. I also had to get used to a a lot of new and different veterinary equipment that I hadn't used before. And this is where it's really important to familiarize yourself with whatever anesthesia equipment you're using, because the basic parts are all going to be the same. It might look different. It might be in a different configuration. But as long as you understand what the core components of an anesthesia machine are and how they fit together and and how they're supposed to be used, you can pretty much figure out any anesthesia machine from anywhere in the world. So we have a couple suppliers here, obviously from China, that make anesthesia machines that were very different looking from what I was used to. And it took a little bit of experimentation to figure them out. But I also have a lot of things that are familiar to me. So we have a lot of B-Bron products. I'm able to source a lot of the same equipment that I used in the U.S. here. So like Myla International will ship here. And and a lot of the drugs I'm able to get, even if they're a different brand name. So that, in a sense, has been a little bit easier. I can get almost any drug that I need in the world, as long as it's licensed somewhere. (laughs) You can get it in Hong Kong. So that's been interesting as well. The other thing I would say about anesthesia equipment here in Hong Kong is don't rely on the English translation and the user manuals. (laughs) (laughs) It's not always accurate. So always find a friend who can translate it directly for you. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and advocating for propofol ketamine, but also just talking about why we might pick all these different induction agents for different patients. And really what we should be advocating for is tailoring an anesthetic plan that fits to your patient's needs. So I really appreciate your time. And hopefully our audience feels a little bit more comfortable picking one of these agents in their practice. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we just dipped our toe in the ocean here. But what I would say is, and what I always tell my students is, don't memorize this drug for this condition or this drug for for this procedure. If you understand how the drugs work that you're using and you understand the effects that you expect to see with each drug, you can come up with a variety of different safe anesthetic protocols for any given patient in any given condition. I think that's really important note. It's not always the drugs, you know, consider the entire patient always. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for your time and enjoy your morning while I go to bed. (laughs) Thank you. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to CE events, focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. Visit www.mynavas.org to advance your anesthesia journey today. Also a huge thank you to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I want to, again, thank our guest, Dr. Xander Thompson, for spending time with us today to help us carefully choose our induction agents in order to tailor an anesthesia plan to the individual needs of our patients. And a huge thank you to all the gas pastors out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the NAVAS podcast. 
Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery. So I hope you consider listening in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and thank you for listening. Thank you.